Hello and welcome back to another edition of The Alonzo Bet. We're your hosts. I'm Aaron. And I'm Sam. And thanks for joining us today. We have an excellent episode on tap for you. A division that we've saved for last because Sam has so much passion and history with it. Yes, folks, we're talking about the National League East. And before we get into all of that, Sam's chomping at the bit over here, but we got a couple other segments. Tell them what's on tap today, Sam. Yeah, so we're going to be talking a bit about the release of a new 10-part documentary series on ESPN entitled The Last Dance, which is a documentary series about the final Jordan season with the Chicago Bulls. We're going to be introducing a fun new segment to you guys, which is a trivia segment where Aaron and I both try to stump each other with trivia questions. And finally, we're going to have your favorite segment, Stat Corner, where we're going to introduce a new hitting stat called Isolated Slugging. And this is a bunch of really exciting stuff. Uh, And before we get into it, just a reminder, if you're not following us on Twitter, find us at the Alonzo Bet. And follow us, subscribe, download on your favorite podcasting services. We're currently on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you want us on something else, just shoot us a message and we'll upload it post-haste. So now let's get into it. Big news uh, out of the sports world, or the big exciting thing going on right now, is that this all-access Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance, coming out tonight... Yeah, today tonight is April 19th for us, so they're, they're debuting the first two episodes. And something that's pretty cool is that the release date was actually pushed up for this because of mm-hmm. uh, I, you know isolation and quarantine. So they just wanted to get sports co- content to us since we have no sports to watch right now. I think it was originally supposed to be released in June. Yeah, but we are plenty happy that it's been released right now. We're not watching tonight, so we can kind of keep pace with you viewers. We didn't want to come out and hit you with any spoilers or anything, but uh, we will be talking about it a little bit in the future, and it's just so cool. I mean, Michael Jordan, this dominant, all-time great basketball player, and for us, a single-season minor leaguer as Yeah, well. yeah, so, you know, I think we're. it's fun to talk about this for two reasons. One is that we... We know we've pretty much been all baseball so far for you guys, but I do want to stress that like we're both big sports fans in general, even mm-hmm. though maybe baseball is our number one love. So we're definitely going to talk about sports stories that interest us outside of the major leagues. But of course, Michael Jordan, possibly the greatest basketball player of all time, was also a minor league baseball player, and he left the, the NBA to go play minor league baseball at the peak of his powers. Yeah. There's a documentary about it called Space Jam. Well, <laughs> and actually, like, That's kind of what this documentary is as well. You know, he leaves after the 97-98 season, and the documentary, The Last Dance, is shot in 97-98 with kind of the foresight. They didn't, I don't think, know that Michael Jordan was going to go play baseball for a year and then sit out two additional years, right? But they did have the foresight to know this might have been the last year with that very, very special Bulls team, which had just been winning finals after finals. The the sitting out to play baseball was in the, it was like 94, 95, right? It was in between the two, three pieces. Oh, right. I'm sorry. So, but he did do the, he retired there. And then went back to the Wizards. Right. Sorry. The baseball is 93, 94. Um, But, and he, he wasn't very good on the diamond. Although like, you know, let's just look at his stats. He played in double-A, which is pretty impressive. I mean, this is a they guy... They just put him there, though. Yeah, they just put him there, but like, this is a guy who didn't train professionally in baseball for for many years, you know, yeah. but his dad's original dream for him was to play Major League Baseball. So I think he sort of felt like he had to do this after mm-hmm. his dad passed away, satisfy this dream. 
His stats uh, in that one season, he played 127 games, had 497 plate appearances, hit three home runs. I mean, he doubled 17 times. To do that at a professional level of baseball is incredibly impressive for a guy who's not training at all. Yeah, he only hit 202, only had a 266 slugging percentage. So, like, he was pretty bad. He was bad, yeah. It was still athletically very impressive what he was able to accomplish. Right, to so just come into a game he hadn't really played at age 31. Um, and then, of course, come back, and as we're talking about, go on this crazy run where they're winning 95-96, 96-97, and 97-98 after he comes back, just cementing this legendary, iconic status um, that kind of makes a lot of people think that he's the best basketball player to ever play the game. Yeah, I think, you know, Jordan's an interesting figure for, I think, you and I because we basically weren't, like, conscious sports fans while he was at the peak of his powers. And right. we were both born in 94. He was, you know, I remember him on the Wizards, but I don't really remember him vividly on the Bulls at all, even though I was alive for the last few years. And I think we're both, you know, LeBron boys, like... If, if you, you ask, are, yeah, if you ask me who the greatest basketball player of all time is, it's LeBron. I would say the same. But you know, it could be partially generational. Like we've watched LeBron be just mm-hmm. a basketball savant for all these years now. Continued the continuity, and you know, you know, I see a lot of people who were alive in the nineties. That's when they got into basketball. Like they'll still say Jordan. Yeah, but I mean, how can you argue? Like LeBron has averaged twenty five points or more and six or more assists, occasionally approaching 10 assists, which he did last year, a steal and a half, almost a full block, and less than four turnovers every single season in his career, except his rookie season. Like, he's amazing. But again, I think there's something, and you know this well, there's something so visceral about sports fandom that when you watch somebody who's so amazing and not just has incredible skills and uh you know, starts to accumulate accolades, but somebody who has these storybook finishes. Like, Michael Jordan was not just an athlete. His life was like a movie, right? Like, he would just win finals and and be on the cover of SI smoking the cigar, then go do whatever he wants. Like, he was a celebrity, and that is ingrained in people's uh, opinion of him as a basketball player. I think you could say he's the most transcendent athlete of all time. It's certainly an argument you could make. Of course, Muhammad Ali is the type of name that comes into there as well. Even Tiger Woods gets that argument, I think, because he truly is a -a once-in-a-lifetime type of athlete that you see. Um, But certainly you could make that argument about him. Yeah, so... You know, we're definitely going to be tuning in to yeah. the last dance. You know, we're really excited about it. And yeah. one other thing that I want to point out is, like, it's amazing that this footage has existed for so long and it's been kept under wrap. Like, nobody's been able to see it. 100%. Like, this is just in-depth footage of that team for the entire season. All access, behind the scenes, they see it all. We'll see what they publish. But it's crazy that in this, like, internet free access of information age we have, somehow people haven't seen this footage. So this will be super exciting. No matter what you think of Jordan and what happened on the court and after he retired, you have to respect the type of athlete he was and the stories he carried with him. So I think this docuseries is going to be absolutely great. I'm so excited for that. So before we move into this trivia segment we promised you, let's just do a quick visit back to the MLB The Show Players League, give a check on the standing for you for you guys. Joey Gallo is still killing it. He's 11-1. and 
Blake Snell is killing it. He's 13-3. and three. Yeah, he's maybe pulled up now yeah. in the polls a little uh, bit. Some other people doing well. Bo Bichette, 9-3. and three. Dwight Smith Jr., 9-3. and three. Fernando Tatis, 9-3. and three. Gavin Lux, 9-3. and three. Some people doing really poorly. Eduardo Rodriguez is 2-10. and ten. It's the old guys, Sam. Yeah. Carlos Santana is 1-9. It's the old guys. And, oh boy, Ty Buttry is 1-11. Yeah, so he's not an old guy. But don't sleep on Hunter Pence at 3-9 and nine down there, right? He's... They just they just don't know these games yeah, they, like they were Joey play, Gallo. They were playing these games on a Nintendo 64 exactly. rather than uh, the PS4. They may be a little bit more familiar with the greatest baseball game of all time, MVP 05. Oh, baby. Uh, Aaron and I were searching long and hard for that game for GameCube on eBay <laughs> recently, and we did find a copy. Have not played it yet, though. All right, so, uh, yeah, guys, make sure you check that out on Twitch if you're itching for some baseball action. They've got fun games going on almost every day. Um, and now let's move into this segment. So what we want to do, we want to just play a little game. Uh, you know, me and Sam will be trying to stump each other a little bit, giving trivia questions. This is our first time trying it. We don't know each other's questions. So if we are a little uneven on difficulty, we'll recalibrate for the next time. Um, but we will be keeping an all-time scoreboard so that we know who is winning our, uh, our trivia games. And if you guys have any great questions that you'd like to hear one of us answer, send it in. The first one of us to see it will ask the other one. Um, and again, you can do that on our email or our Twitter, thealonzobet at gmail or at thealonzobet. Um, and so now, who wants to go first, Sam? Well, let me start with the question. Okay. So my first question, I think, is topical for the Analyst Division preview because... I have one as well. A man who has won back-to-back Cy Youngs in the uh, NL is Jacob deGrom. Also known as DeGoat, the Grominator, <laughs> the best pitcher in the league, or as was shown on this Players Weekend t-shirt, Just DeGrom. That's the nickname you want. Just, Just DeGrom. DeGrom. Because this is a man who's not only great, but he's also humble. He is. So he's looking to win three Cy Youngs in a row, Aaron. Do you know the only two pitchers that have done that before? And I'll actually tell you that both of them won four in a row. Great question, Sam. Tremendous question. Um, four sides in a row. Let me give you the first clue. One is that uh, he was a part of a World Series team that is near and dear to your heart. Randy Johnson. So That's right. Yeah, I, I basically knew that one already. I was just thinking, was it Randy or was it Roger Clemens? Um, but I don't believe Clemens is the other one. So Clemens... Uh, Won four Cy Youngs, and I think he won back to back twice. Right, but, but, he, but he never won three in a row. Right. Randy Johnson went from 99 to 2002, won four in a row. Absolute legend, the big unit. He used to play basketball against his son, and let me tell you, that was not quite as large a unit as Randy yeah. was. I actually once saw when Randy Johnson was, in the, uh, was on the Yankees, when I was 13, I once saw him in a movie theater. He was seeing a movie with two of his kids. And he had one arm, uh, both of his kids were sitting to his right, <laughs> and he had one arm around both of them in the theater. Amazing. Just a giant man. Um, okay, so the other guy, we're going to have to go back in time a little bit for this, aren't we? We are, but not that far back. I'm thinking Bob Gibson. Not Bob Gibson. It's much more recent than that. And okay. I will say that he played for a team that we will be previewing today. Really? Was it Maddox? It was Maddox. Yes, that's that's a great question. And I forgot that Maddox won four in a row because he only has five total, right? Or does he just have those four? Uh, I think those might be his only four. I'm not actually sure. But so he won from 92 to 95. I think the first was with the Cubs and the next three. Yeah, the next three were with the Braves. Braves. Um, No, he did snag another one in 1989. 
Um, oh no, he finished third that year. I'm sorry. So yeah, those were his only four. He did it four in a row, and I just I don't think that ever dawned on me. An incredible pitcher like Maddox, a guy who did it with just knowing exactly how to pitch, mm-hmm. like pinpoint control, just knowing how to play the batter. He, you know, one really cool thing I like about Greg Maddox is that there's a stat invented about him called the Maddox, which is a complete, <laughs> which is a complete game thrown in fewer than a hundred pitches. Okay. Which is, I, I think, because, you know, this dude just carved through a lineup just knowing how to pitch. He was the definition of having no stuff, really. Even at his very best, he never had, like, electric knockout stuff, right? But all he knew how to locate every single pitch, and that's an older style of ball, but something that you still see in some very special pitchers. When Kershaw's on, he really knows how to pitch. He just also has great stuff. A guy like Kyle Hendricks gets through by being a poor man's Greg Maddox. He has even worse stuff, but he kind of knows how to get out. Great guy. Great, great trivia question, Sam. All right, let me hear your first question for me. Okay, so my first one for you uh, was actually going to be a little too hard, so I'm going to recalibrate it, but in a similar direction, okay? All right. So I want to know the two all-time leading Mets in OPS. Okay. With, like, at least... 500 career OPS. Yeah. No, for the Mets. Career for, OPS for, for the, the Mets. For the Mets, but not yeah. like a single season. Yeah. Player. The top two. So one's got to be David Wright, right? It's not. It's not. Wow. David Wright is five. Okay. Um, is Carlos Beltran up there? Carlos Beltran's four. Okay. So you keep going this way, you might just guess the top five in order. Uh, Daryl Strawberry? He's number three. He's number three. Okay. Um, Mike Piazza? He's number two. All right. Uh, number one, who am I missing? Is it, you know, it's not Gary Carter, is it? It's not. It's, it's basically the reason I asked this question. That's the clue I'll give you. Is it John Olerud? Oh, how did you know that? It is John Olerud with the gnarly 926 OPS. He's only on the Mets for a couple seasons, but I think he hit like 350 in those seasons, so... (laughs) Wow, great, great job, Sam. So I'll tell you, originally I was going to ask you uh, to just name the top two in defensive war. But in I, yeah, but it's way too hard. I'm just going to give you the also, also, defensive war, like they try to evaluate defense going further back, yeah. like from when DRS and UCR were created. So you'll still see defensive war stats, but they're somewhat meaningless. Right, yeah. yeah I mean, it was Bud Harrelson and Jerry Grove. Yeah. So like you just Jerry weren't going to get that. I was never going to guess yeah. that. Um, so I'm glad I changed it because that was really fun. And guys, you see, Sam knows what he's talking about with these bets. Um, he just named five, four, three, two, one in order with only one or two misses career OPS leader for the Mets. So that was great. Uh, I have one more for you. Do you have one more for me? I do. And this is just a quick one. Okay. So at this current point, who currently has a higher career fan graphs war? Mike Trout or Derek Jeter? And extra points if you can if you can tell me uh, like roughly what their war what each of their war is. So I think each of their war is around ninety two ninety three. Um, I think that Jeter might have him by a win and a half. One of them has a seventy three point four oh, career oh, war. Oh. The other has a 73.1 career war. Wow. Mike Trout has a 73.4 career war, so he's currently higher. Yeah. So if Mike Trout is not elected to the Hall of Fame 
unanimously on the first ballot, I'm going to be very upset. And, I, and I, I'm sorry about that botch there, guys. I did a weird thing with numbers in my head. But that actually tells you something about Jeter. Is like, how good was he? Uh, I mean, Jeter is undoubtedly deserving of being in the Hall of Fame. But I think he's a guy who's viewed as like the player of his generation. Yeah. When maybe the level that he reached as a player, mm-hmm. as opposed to like as a figurehead for the Yankees, yeah. their captain, sort of doesn't necessarily gel with with that exactly. view of him. So I would say um, uh, I was so far off there. You, that's a massive stump. So you're up one nothing. I think we both kind of got the first ones. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, so now my second so one. So one. Well, or, oh, one one and getting them one stump. To yeah, them. one stump yeah, okay. to none. I, I think yeah. it's easier to count the stumps. Um, who's the active leader in home run to fly ball rate? Wow, that's a good one. Joey Gallup? Great guess. He's number two. Um, I'm not a, I'm not sure who else to guess. You, you gotta just tell me. Aaron Judge. Oh, I I'm an idiot, because I was about to guess him and then I was just like, uh, is it him? Yeah, Aaron Judge. Um, then Giancarlo, Miguel Sano, Gary Sanchez. And randomly, Domingo Santana has his name up in actually the all-time leaderboard. But you have to understand that home run to fly ball rate only exists for like the last like 25 years of data or something. It's not that old. The career leader in home run to fly ball rate, Felix Jose, random outfielder who played in the late 80s to early 2000s. I can't say I've ever heard of him. No, never heard of him. But boy, could he hit the ball out of the yard if he put it in the air. It was mostly a function of the fact that he didn't hit home runs. But 37.5% of the time, over 800 games, if he put it in the air, it was over. That is uh, unsustainable. That is, well, but he did it over 800 games. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> that's like, uh, that's seven seasons. How, how is that possible? I don't know. How many, how many at-bats did he have? Uh, 2,756 players. How, how is that possible? Yeah, I don't you, know. You know what? It must have been that like home run to fly ball rate was introduced like only the last season of his career or something. Do you think? I just don't think it's possible to have that home run for fly ball yeah, rate in that know. many games. It's pretty. It's pretty crazy. Oh, you're right. You're right. It was only over. It was only over the last two seasons of his career. <laughs> yeah. Sam with the in-depth sleuthing, and that's why you have to learn to double check. Facts, folks. If something looks wrong, it might be. And we have all these tools at our fingertips. We can go in and look at them. Well, but I think home run per fly ball rate is a good transition into into our stat corner stat this week, which is isolated slugging. Yep. Because what isolated slugging tries to measure is basically how much power a player has. And basically, uh, what isolated slugging is is there. You know, normal stats that you see offensively are average which basically tells you how often a player gets a hit per Mm at-bat. So, you know, if you have a 400 average, you get a .4 hits per at-bat. And traditionally, as many of you know, this is a standard stat. This is like a gold standard of stat to determine, like, what type of contact hitter a hitter is, basically. Yeah, and obviously we know average isn't the end-all, be-all of offensive statistics because, you know, there's a difference between getting a single and hitting a home run. You'd rather hit for power. And that's where something like slugging comes in. So a slugging percentage basically tells you how many bases you're getting per at-bat. So 
you know, if you hit a home run every time, you'd have a, have a 4,000 slugging because you're getting four bases per at bat. But slugging isn't really enough to just tell you about a player's power. And the reason is, and, and we can give sort of two examples to demonstrate that. Imagine hitter A, who basically gets a single four out of every 10 at bats. So he both has a 400 batting average and a 400 slugging percentage. Now imagine player B, who gets a home run one out of every 10 at-bats and doesn't get a hit otherwise. He now has a 100 batting average, but he also has a 400 slugging percentage. Now, player B clearly has much more power than player A. He's hitting home runs way more. But they both have the same slugging percentage, so clearly slugging percentage is missing something in evaluating player power. So how does isolated slugging sort of solve that problem? Isolated slugging just solves the problem by taking singles out, basically. They basically look at slugging percentage minus average in terms of a formula, but to do so, they just say, we only want to see how many extra bases you were able to hit for as opposed to, uh, or per each plate appearance. And so, different than some of the other stats we've looked at recently, guys, like WRC Plus or FIP, there's no like normalization here for the league. This is actually a, just a combination of two very basic statistics, slugging percentage and average, to try to isolate how many extra bases a batter is able to produce per at-bat that he has at the ditch. Yeah, I think this is the most basic statistic we've covered yet, except it's a really good statistic for measuring one very specific thing, which is how much power a player displays. Right, and my feeling is actually this is a statistic that may see revamping soon uh, with a lot of StatCast data coming out because now we can say a lot more um, about what we think a power profile should look like in terms of batted balls. But for now, ISO is actually really great. So um, if you want to look at just what a terrific ISO would be, Mike Trout led the league last year with 353. But roughly speaking, he was hitting for three-tenths of an extra base every at-bat. Yeah, which is insane. And that, it's actually higher than Babe Ruth's career ISO, which was 348. And that's a pretty good standard to hold that, yourself that to. That is the number one career ISO, in fact. Right. Um, and a couple other guys were on that list, actually. Mark McGuire is sitting in there at number 22, but he is a whole 23 points lower at 325. Then, of course, you got Barry Bonds at 309. Part of the reason for that is because he just walked and got on base so much that it, you know, it didn't even count into the ISO. Lou Gehrig, Hank Greenberg, some guys you would expect. But then, actually, the active leader is Giancarlo Stanton with a which, 279 which, you know, shows that this stat is pretty is measuring what it sort of mm -hmm. is trying to because when you think of Giancarlo Stanton, literally the first thing you think of is his insane elite power. Um, and then league average last year, Sam, was yeah. 183. So you're looking, that's pretty normal, right? That's like one, almost two extra bases every 10 at-bats, so a double every 10 at-bats, something like that. But, kind of. you know, an interesting fact about last year is that is actually the highest single-season average ISO in Major League history, mm -hmm. and that includes the steroid era. And for comparison, in just the year 2014, the league average ISO was 135. So that was sort of a full half less extra base per 10 at-bats uh, in 2014 versus last year when, you know, the ball was a bit different and there was just this insane power spike. And interestingly enough, the number two all-time season is 2017. And that was a whole 12 points lower than 2019, so the ball is juiced. 
players are swinging for the fence, but this is a trend. There's All a... of the top 19 seasons in ISO have been since 1990. And I think that's sort of a combination of the steroid era mm-hmm. and the sort of now the juiced ball era. Actually, sorry, everything through 26 has been through 1990. Wow, yeah. And I think just a general increase in power in the league. Right, yeah. We've just sort of seen guys hit more and more home runs as the league has continued. Now, if you want to see sort of the other end of what an ISO is, like how what's a real weak hitter? What sort of ISO are they generating? The worst ISO in the league last year was Yolmer Sanchez at .069. So he was getting less than an extra base per 10 at Yolmer, we hate to see it, buddy, yeah. but uh, Yolmer unfortunately did not make it back onto the White Sox this year with that new and improved lineup that we previewed in the previous episode of the Alonzo Bet. He's unfortunately the standard bearer for not hitting the ball far or hard or taking an extra base for two. He just didn't do any of it last year. Kind of the perfect bad storm for Yolmer. So... This is a great stat uh, for you to use to know what type of power to expect out of hitters. Um, There's no expected version of this stat, to my knowledge, right now. Well, I mean, I guess what it would just be is expected slugging minus expected batting. Yeah, sure, I suppose you could do it. Um, But, uh, again, it's got its shortcomings as well, and most of those are rooted in kind of the linear evaluation of bases, I think. Um, Yeah, exactly. There's a reason why ISO is not used in war calculations uh, and WOBA or WRC Plus is used instead because ISO sort of values every extra base as equal, while mm-hmm. that's not the case. But it does kind of tell you something on an average scale, which we're all familiar with, which is good. But, of course, it's just important to remember that a 300 ISO is amazing, unlike a 300 batting average, even though the numbers look similar. Um, the scale is kind of different. I think anything above, like, 250 is starting to get pretty good. Like and that's pretty elite, I think. Above 200 is above average. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, 250 puts you in, like, the top 30 in baseball, basically. So that's very good. Um, and then anything higher than that, obviously, you're just getting better and better. So, again, if there's a stat you guys want to hear about, make sure you reach out to us and let us know. We've got many more coming your way, uh, but if there's something you're curious about, please drop us a line. And one other thing I want to keep you guys looking out for is now that we've introduced you to ISO, we're actually going to start a new series on our Twitter account called Isolation ISO, Mm -hmm. mostly because ISO uh, sounds like isolation. And and, we are isolated. Yeah, and we thought it would be a fun, fun sort of series to give you on our Twitter account, so maybe once every couple days we'll just tweet out an interesting ISO stat to look Mm -hmm. at for a certain player in a certain season, give you the little hashtag isolation ISO, and just keep an eye out for that. I think it'll be a fun thing to look out for on our Twitter account. And of course, when we uh, can think of more alliterative uh, plays like that, we'll hit you with more stats. Exactly. So with that, should we we move into the division preview? I I gotta be honest, listeners, I'm nervous. Um, I think Sam's gonna be mad with how I ranked the teams, but I made the decision, so I gotta face the music. I'm gonna tell you where I have everybody, then you tell me yours. Alright, go ahead. I got the Braves in the number one spot. Alright, makes sense. I got the Nationals in the number two spot. Okay. This was really, really tough for me, Sam. But I have the Phillies in the number three spot. And that's signing off. This is actually uh, the last episode of the Alonzo Bet. You won't be hearing from us again oh, because no. Aaron and I can no longer podcast oh, together. Oh, no. I knew that that was going to be a disaster. And I'm so sorry. It was so, so close. We'll talk about them in detail. 
But uh, I just couldn't give the edge to the Mets, who are a great team, but are in my fourth spot. And then, of course, the Marlins are bringing up the Caboose. Yeah, and I do think this is probably one of the deepest divisions in baseball. Ish. Yeah, one, one through four, it's probably the best division in baseball. Right. You know, the Marlins are pretty bad. Whoever but... finishes fourth in this division will probably have the best record of a fourth-place team. Yeah. Um, so let me, let me tell you the philosophy from which I rank these teams. Okay. So, before the Noah Syndergaard injury, I saw the Mets, Braves, and Nats as all roughly equal. Um, and I saw the Phillies as still a good team, but sort of below that, that top tier. After the Syndergaard injury, I think an objective observer might look at these teams and say, the Braves and Nats are, are the two best. I think the Mets are still a clear step above the Phillies. Um, okay. And then the... Um, the, the Marlins fifth, obviously. However, this is a season prediction. And in my heart, I know that the Mets are going to win the NL East this season. And we're going to go at the end of the season and sort of evaluate how well we pick these divisions. Mm-hmm. So given that I know in my heart the Mets are going to win the division, I want to make the right pick. That's fair. So even though I know, you know, an impartial observer might put the Mets a step below the Braves and Nationals this year, I have to pick them to win the division because that's what's going to happen. And I think that that's a reasonable thing for you to do as a Mets super fan. But when, well, let's just get into them now, actually. So, oh, and, and, but let, let me just be clear. Uh, my ordering, so my ordering is Mets. Oh, I'm sorry. Bra- my yeah. ordering is Mets, Braves, Nationals, Phillies, Marlins. So I, I do agree with your grouping of Braves, uh, the Braves and Nats, which I think would be the only other thing up for debate. Yeah, right. I mean, theoretically, you could debate all four spots in this division, but um, let's go through your order since this is your home division, um, and you know we'll give you a home court advantage here. So for the Mets, um, I'm going to go out and say, you know, I agree with you that this is a pretty good team this year. Um, they got a lot of big time players. But, boy, they're kind of shallow everywhere. My weakness is their depth. Um, They're not really strong defensively anywhere, and they're kind of shallow in their rotation and their lineup and a little bit in their bullpen. Um, But they do have great players at the top of all three of those. Um, But that's kind of where I came down on them. And something we can do in a sec uh, or a little later is just a comparison. But when I went player by player, This is how I came to the conclusion. When I went player by player, Phillies and Mets, the the Phillies have a slight edge just because they have a better lineup and with Syndergaard out, the rotations are a toss-up. I I mean, I think calling the rotations a toss-up is unfair because I think DeGrom is just like so much better than Nola and Wheeler. Like, DeGrom's going to, like, I think you can just project DeGrom to be two wins above whoever's the best of those two. Sure, but I think you can project each of them to be a win above Strowman, so the top two are tied. Potentially, maybe. Yeah, I mean, or you can just go deeper into it, and you can look at the rest of the pitching staff, and, like, then you got Rick Porcello, Steven Matz, and Michael Waka. I mean, you don't know what you're getting out of Matz. He, He can never pitch a ton of innings. In comparison to Arietta Eflin and Vince Velasquez, that's also a toss-up for me. Yeah, I mean, I I personally like Matt's better than any of those Phillies guys. Uh, better than Arietta this season? Yeah, I, I think. But Arietta's you know, Arietta's going to throw 150 innings. 
I think I think Matt's is high. I think Matt's will be better in the innings he throws than Arietta, and and I don't think it's actually obvious like as Arietta ages that he's just going to keep like eating innings. I think Porcello, you know, is on the level of Eflin or, or Velasquez. I think I I don't like Waka as the fifth starter, mm-hmm. but I do sort of think that David Peterson could be their fifth starter sooner rather than later. And I like him better than Waka. So, you know, and part of what I do like about the Mets is they have a couple guys in their bullpen and Seth Lugo and Robert Gazelman who, like, if things really go disastrous, could moonlight as pretty good starters, Lugo especially. Um, now, I don't... Yeah, but that's... It, it, you yeah, that's going to weaken their bullpen, of course. It weakens their bullpen, and it's kind of a disaster if you have either of those guys starting every fifth day. Well, I mean, I think Lugo would be, like better than any of those Philly starters if he started. Like, he, he has the arsenal to start. I think he's just so valuable to the Mets out of the bullpen that he doesn't. And the Mets already pitch him in the bullpen kind of as a starter. They don't go back-to-back days with him. They like to have him throw two innings when he goes in the bullpen. Like, And, and he's a guy who's had success starting in the past, and I think just sort of moved to the bullpen out of a need for the Mets, and because they've had such a deep rotation in years past. But again, like Lugo is a guy who I think, if given the chance to start, could be really good. But I think the other place I want to push back on on what you said about the Mets is the lack of depth in their lineup. I actually think there are no clear positional holes in the lineup. You know, I think the biggest one would probably be Wilson Ramos at, at catcher. But but even Ramos like could be like a pretty above average, could be an average to above average hitter at catcher in a decent season. I'd like to see the the catching fielding improve, um, but again, you don't think Rosario is a hole? No, not at all. I mean, I think, I think if Rosario is what he was last year, like most teams would be fine to have him as their shortstop, and I see him as a player on the rise. I think he's a guy who can play, can hit average to slightly above average at shortstop. He's a guy who I think has gotten a reputation as a guy who can't field at shortstop, but. He's really improved over the last season. So if you look at some of the defensive metrics that saw him as a as a bad fielder last year, most of that bad fielding happened in like a disastrous April and May, and he actually graded out as an average to slightly above average shortstop after that in the season. And something to remember about Rosario is like, yeah, the prospect shine has worn off a little bit, but he's not that far removed from being a top five prospect in baseball. He's still only 24. He's gotten every better every season of his career. I mean, last year, he had almost three wins above replacement. And remember, two wins above replacement is an average player at a position. So I think I like the progression of Rosario. The power has gone up every year. The strikeout rate continues to fall. He has really good back-to-ball skills. I think the next step in his development is learning to be more selective about which pitches he chooses to attack. Because I think part of the problem with Rosario is he has such good hand-eye coordination that he feels like he can attack more balls than he really should. Like, he should really be choosing a part of the zone that he can punish balls with. But, like, yeah, I don't see Rosario as a weakness, for sure. Yeah, and I guess I don't really disagree with anything you say, but I just look at this lineup, and, yeah, I think McNeil's a good hitter. We know Pete Alonso hits for power. And Conforto's been good, but between the injury concerns I have for almost every single player... And the very big question marks I have for some younger guys like Rosario and Nimmo and some older guys like Ramos, Cano, and Cespedes. But I, like, I just don't know if that lineup's really going to be good. Like, 
how many, like, they may get a, a hundred and ten games from Luis Guillermo if things go sideways. I, I just, Renee, I don't know. I just don't think that they're structured in a way that makes me very confident in their ability to compete in a division that will be just hammering on each other all year long. It's going to take but, but depth and... I, I guess it's interesting that you say they have no depth because I think they actually have the best bench bats of any team in the league. Like, you're looking at a bench that may consist of Dom Smith, Cespedes, Jed Lowry, Jake Marisnik, and Matt Adams. Like, those are all, like, better hit, like, very good hitters to have on your bench. Matt Adams is a great piece off the bench. I don't... But Matt Adams is the worst player in those players. But I, but I just don't see Cespedes ever coming off the bench. If he plays this year, he plays, but he probably won't. Okay, but if he does play, then you have, like, J.D. Davis coming off the bench. Who Maybe. absolutely raked last year. Yeah. Like, but, like, basically, I'm saying, like, I, I just don't agree with the evaluation that they don't have depth. I actually think they probably have the best hitting depth in the division. Yeah, I mean... I disagree, but I see your point, uh, and I think that, as I've mentioned, they definitely have the talent and the pieces to put it together. You know, they have a pretty good bullpen. They have one of the best starters in baseball, arguably the best starter in baseball, and as Sam mentioned, they have a lot of lineup pieces that can really get the job done at the ditch. So they can definitely put it together, but if you're asking me to look at this division and try and guess what's going to happen... You know, Mets dysfunction plus injury history plus unproven players is more question marks than any other team in that division. And so that, for me, was the reason I wasn't able to put them above the Phillies. I never really even considered them above the Braves and Nats because, yeah, and to I, me, on paper, they're so and much better. I, and I think that's fair with the Syndergaard injury. I think if Syndergaard's not injured, we have a, a whole separate question. And I think yeah, like, actually even a lot of projection systems had the Mets as like, marginally the best team in this division before the Syndergaard injury. It makes a huge difference. Yeah, I mean, Syndergaard is, like, a top 15, at worst, top 20 starter in baseball. Now, before we move on to the next team, let me get on my soapbox and just tout my player to watch for this team, and that's Brandon Nimmo. Folks, I promise I won't let him do this every week, but he he deserves this one. He's been on Nimmo from the start. Because I think Brandon Nimmo is a bit of a forgotten man, and... People are forgetting that two years ago, in 2018, Brandon Nimmo had a 148 WRC+. plus. So he was the sixth best hitter in baseball on a per-plate appearance basis. Part of the reason for that is Brandon Nimmo has an elite skill in his plate discipline. He is able to walk at an extremely high clip, uh, 15% uh, uh, walk rate throughout his entire career, you know, 18% is sort of normally league-leading, which was actually his walk rate last year. Yeah, in 69 games last yeah. year. Now, he actually took a big step back last year to the tune of only a 114 WRC+, plus. although he continued to walk at an extremely high rate. What happened is his power went down a little bit, and uh, his batting average went down a lot. Now, what I want to point out for Nimmo is that he injured his neck very early on in the season last year, and then continued to play for about another month while his neck was still injured until eventually he had to shut it down. So he had a pretty disastrous first couple months of the season, but what I want to chalk that up to is a man who was simply playing hurt. Now, once Nimmo was able to come back at the end of the season, he was able to put a 159 WRC Plus together basically in the last 20 to 30 games of the season. Now, granted, this is a short sample size, but I think if you're looking to tell an overall story of Nimmo, 
You're talking about a guy with elite plate discipline who was one of the top 10 hitters in baseball in 2018. You're talking about a guy who played hurt for the first half of 2019, and once he took many months to get healthy, came back and performed exactly the same as he had in 2018 before his injury. So I don't really see why you can't look at Brandon Nimmo as a guy who's not only going to be like a decent piece to have him in outfield, but a borderline all-star level player. And if you look at projection systems, they're not that confident in Nimmo. But I think part of the reason for that is a projection system can't really know that, you know, the first half of Nimmo's season last year was him playing hurt, right? They just have to sort of take the inputs of those stats and say, well, he wasn't very good and he only had one good year. Uh, But, you know, if you take a bit of the human element in evaluation and are able to maybe discount the plate appearances he had where he was clearly playing hurt, I see him as a as a player who really is one of, you know, maybe the elite plate discipline guys in the league who can be a very, very good hitter and outfielder in this league. And and Aaron, you, you did end up drafting him in your fantasy baseball. That's what league, I was right? about to say is that Sam got on this soapbox so frequently. He got into my head, I took him for fantasy, and I'm super excited because Sam's totally right. I actually play in an OPS league, and this guy's a legend. For OPS because he just gets on base and gets on base and gets on base. And if he can just add a modicum of power to that, as he did over 140 games in 2018, we very much could be looking at a hitter that is kind of a poor man's Joey Votto. Great on base skills, you know, good power. He'll never have the power Joey Votto had. But someone that could fly under the radar, no one could realize how good he is, but could have a big, big impact on this Mets team. And just for the record, my player to watch here was actually Marcus Stroman. Um, I think he's the key to whether this team is going to be able to fight for a wild card spot or not. Um, And last year... He definitely needs to be good. Last year, on its face, it looked like he was getting better because he had that disastrous 2018. uh, Not too many games, only 20 games, but 5-5-4 ERA. He's been up and down his whole career. Um, and so last year he kind of had that 3-2-2, but his FIP was still pretty high. He outperformed uh, his expected FIP, and I, he just doesn't strike that many guys out for today's game, and he still walks over three. He's a really tough, really tough pitcher for today's environment, and he's a ground ball pitcher, and with the Mets infield defense, he's not in an ideal location for him. But again, I will note that I expect the infield defense to be better this year. I think Rosario has improved a lot. I think McNeil will be taking most of the the snaps at third base, which mm-hmm. I think will be an improvement for them over, you know, J.D. Davis playing there, Todd Frazier playing there. I think, you know, Alonzo is not a great defensive first baseman, but he's improved he's a learning. lot. I don't love Cano at second. I was going to say, yeah. his second base is having Cano there. Sam and I, you know, watch a ton of, ton of Met games, because Sam watches Mets games, and I'll watch any baseball game. So we watched a ton of Met games last year. When Cano was playing in the beginning of the season, sometimes it looked like he didn't even care. Or yeah. like, he wasn't even trying to pick the that, ball up. That off is the kind ground. of his style. Yeah, very, but, yeah, very but, loosey-goosey. Yeah. I, I will say about Cano, though, that you know, last season was a disaster. Yeah. You know, the Kalenic trade is really turning out to be a, a, a true disaster for the Mets. But you know, Cano is a guy I expect to be better than last year. If you look at some of these stat cats, expected stats, he yeah. was one of the more unlucky hitters in baseball last year. Mm-hmm. I still think he's a guy who can be an average to slightly above average hitter in this league. I, my first choice Mets lineup would not necessarily have him in it, but you know, yeah, because you want JD Davis yeah, playing. That guy's got real pop right they're, now. They're they're paying Cano. I think he's going to play. 
until he gets hurt. But, you know, I, I've, I've said my piece on the Mets. I think we can move on. And I hope we can move on in this yeah. friendship, Sam, because it wasn't personal. I was just trying to do my best. And now this actually brings us to the team who I had at number one, who I think is the clear and away best team in this division, and that's the Atlanta Braves. I think they've got a really strong lineup. they got a lot of talent, uh, both in their rotation and in their lineup. And I kind of think that this is a team who added a couple pieces, made value buys, grew some talent, and still has a bunch left down on the farm, and is kind of going to not walk away because this division is so tight, um, but really going to have a firm grasp on this. I think their one Achilles heel is that the front end of their rotation doesn't inspire a lot of confidence in a division where there's a lot of true aces. Yeah, well, it depends how much you believe in Soroka's season last year. And I think in our personal conversations, I think we differ on that a bit. I think you're higher on Soroka's future than I am. Uh, I think so also, but I will say, Sam, that I always anticipate some regression for a really great rookie. For example, I anticipate regression for Pete Alonso, even though I believe yeah, he's a great hitter. No, I, I agree with that as well. I anticipate some regression from uh, Mike Soroka because, number one, you don't just have a 2.68 ERA and kind of strand almost 80% of runners and only give up 10% of fly balls for homers and have an expected FIP over a full point higher than yours every year after every year. Kind of the underlying numbers are a little bit concerning for him. But what makes me confident in him as a pitcher for them, you know, that's why I say the front end's a little question mark, because I'm not sure he's a true ace like these other guys in yeah, the division. Yeah, I, I think Soroka will be, like, a good two to three in this league for a long time. I'm, okay. just, I'm just not sure that he's, he's like, ever gonna, going to ascend to, you know, top 10 to 15 pitcher in, in baseball level, which is, like, a level he sort of pitch close to from an yeah. ERA perspective last year. Well, the guy who I actually kind of see him becoming because the team fits and the pitch arsenal fits, he's kind of like Tim Hudson. They have so much pitching talent here, and actually a lot of numbers think guys like Max Fried and uh, maybe a Bryce Wilson or a, um, a Gorka or whatever his name is, their other top pitching prospect, could pan out to be true aces in the league. Soroka kind of doesn't have that makeup, but he can be more than a good two. He can be like a step below the Steven Strasburg dominant type two that we have in this league. And that's kind of what... Strasburg's a true ace, though. Like, yeah, he just yeah. happens to be a two on the Nationals. Yeah. But. but I see him in that spot where, like, he's pitching in some really good rotations and he's kind of a very important, strong anchor at two. I see him having some other guy like Max Fried down at three, who's another part of their rotation. But again, who's that guy who you're going to be 100% certain turning the ball over to every fifth day on the Mets, you have DeGrom. On the Phillies, you have Nola. On the Nats, you have at least two guys who fit that bill in Scherzer and in Strasburg. And in the Marlins, who cares? But with the Braves, for everything else great they've got, and I think they can make up for this divot there, but they just don't have a guy who is really lights out. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think one thing the Braves do have, you know, outside of the lack of maybe, like, a, a lights-out ace like DeGrom or Scherzer, is they do have a lot of pitching depth oh, in yeah. the organization. So they have a lot of guys that they can cycle in. Like, even though I think Felix Hernandez might start the season as their fifth starter, I don't think they no. want him throwing as many innings as a fifth starter. They have more depth in the organization. 
you might see a comeback out of Mike Fultonavich, who's only sort of a year mm-hmm. removed from being an all-star, and after ending up in the minors last year, really did flash some of what he had shown in 2018 when he came back. I, I like the Cole Hamels pickup. I think he's still a good pitcher in this league and, you know, is a really solid four to have. But, yeah, I, I agree that the uh, the starting rotation is not maybe at the level of the Nationals or or probably the Mets. And, again, part of the way they make up for that is in their bullpen. You know, they have a lot of these, like, Sean Newcomb, Tuki Toussaint, Kyle Wright, Bryce Wilson guys who could be starters or they could pitch multiple innings out of the bullpen. If any team was going to use a starter – Honestly, this team could piggyback like a Bryce Wilson, Tukey Toussaint, Sean Newcomb, Kyle Wright every fourth and fifth day, and they could get a lot of mileage out of that and basically, you know, have a, a lot of bullpen depth and a lot of pitching depth that way. So I, that's, again, why I feel it's possible for them to make up for the slight dearth um, at the top of the rotation. And I think Will Smith was a really important signing for them because that, that bolstered the bullpen, and the bullpen was their big weakness last year. Yeah. It was pretty much the weakness of every NLEs team yeah. last year. Um, what did you have as their... Uh, or weakness was rotation, right? Yeah, or, you know, pitching. You know, if I had to point to a weakness, I think it's pitching because yeah. the lineup is, is really, really strong. It's really strong. I mean, Freddie Freeman, Ozzy Albis. Obviously, Ronald Obviously, Acuna. Acuna, you know. Ozuna is a nice piece, piece to pick up. Dansby's figuring it out with the bat. Tyler Flowers and Travis Darno's a good catcher platoon. But, but for instance, you know, you know, not to bring it back to, the, back to the Mets, but for instance, like, I would prefer Ahmed Rosario than Dansby Swanson. Like, I actually disagree with you there. I think... I mean, Rosario's done more in his, in his career than Dansby. Yeah, Rosario's had a little bit more success in his career than Dansby. And he's Dansby. younger. Is he younger? I don't yeah. think so. Dansby's like 26. I yeah, think. Dansby is 26, yeah. Ahmed's only... Uh, 24. 24, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, yeah, maybe I would rather have Ahmed then if he's younger. But again, that's, you know, that's kind of a toss-up. And then, But the Mets don't have anyone who's Ronald Acuna, Ozzy Albies, Freddie Freeman, or Marcelo Zuna. I think those players are better than every position player on the Mets. Uh, not Ozuna. I mean, I'd, I'd rather have McNeil and Alonzo to Ozuna. And obviously, but Ozuna uh, could have a better year than both of them this year. Yeah, possibly, but I mean, he was worse than both of them right, last year, right. and and he's on the you know he's sort of been. But so their on, top on two the players team. are like, even in your estimation, four and five in the Braves lineup. That's... Uh, I also think they're. I, I'm not sure. I'd rather have them than Albies like going forward, like on Albies's contract. But I do think they're probably better hitters than. Uh, and honestly, they Albies were... also provides a, a lot of defensive value. Yeah, sure. Very and, and if we're going just by hitters, like both of those guys were better hitters than Acuna last year. But we can talk about uh, that. We'll talk about that. We can talk later. about that more. But so like... Acuna is my player to watch, and I actually do want to take a moment on him because he's one of the exciting stars in our league. Did you have a player to watch you wanted to bring up first, though? Yeah, mine was Austin Riley. We don't need to talk much about him, but like he's an interesting guy in that. He's a he's a prospect that struggled a bit in his debut last year. Mm-hmm. I think he only had like an 85 WRC plus. But came out of the gate so hot. If you yeah, remember. and if you look at, I mean, he showed his power in the league last year. Like he had a 250 ISO. The problem is he struck out too much. He struck out 36 percent of the time. But throughout the, his minor leagues, he basically all he did was rake, and he just has insane power. You know. Yeah. Like so, if. He puts the pieces together and starts to make more contact at the major league level. He could just be another star in that line. Absolutely, but you just cannot in in the minors. He's striking out twenty to twenty five percent of the time. That's tough, but palatable. 
In the major leagues, you cannot strike out 36.5% of the time. You will not play a full major league season like that because teams just absolutely cannot have it. But I agree, he's so interesting, and he could be an absolute monster for them this year. So uh, let me uh, let me hear what you, your take on Acuna is. Okay, so Ronald Acuna, for those of you who don't know, 22-year-old center fielder for, well, he's played a little bit of left and right for them too, but um, for the Atlanta Braves, he's fast. He stole 37 bases last year. He hits for power. He hit 41 bombs last year. And he makes sick plays in the field sometimes. He's got a cannon. He's a true five-tool player. Somebody's going to argue with that. They're going to say he doesn't have contact skills or whatever because he hit 280 last year. But I believe he's a true five-tool player. But everybody has this price tag on Acuna. And I'm really not – I really don't want to – sound like I'm doubting Acuna's skills and ability because he could just be like, you know, a top 10 player in the league for many years. But people have this idea that he's like the next Mike Trout and he's this transcendent talent. And he kind of is from a pure raw talent and skill standpoint, but he hasn't really put it together or shown the signs of being able to put it together. And again, he's only 22, but I think for people to think we have the next coming of Barry Bonds, Babe Ruth, Ted Williams, Mike Trout, is kind of foolhardy because I don't think he really has that. He reminds me a lot more of an Andrew Jones guy who can start out doing it all and then some of the quick twitch things go and then the fielding goes a little bit and then his career is cut short and he's still maybe a borderline Hall of Famer. But, boy, it looks so bright for a while and then it just doesn't pan out that way. And let's be clear, like, even the player Acuna was last year is a perennial all-star. Oh, yeah, he, so, he was almost a 6 yeah. player. So, so it's not to say that, like, Acuna is not already great, and I do think, you know, he's one of the guys, you know, one of the top two or three guys if you're building a team starting now yeah. that, that you're going to choose. Definitely. But, like, let's be clear. His WRC Plus last year was 126, which is good but not great. Mm-hmm. And that's what I mean when I say Alonzo and McNeil, who both had over 140 WRC Pluses last year, were just objectively better hitters than him last year. You know... Depends I, on the metric you want to use, but yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know... Because neither I, of them had... Sorry, neither of them had a 5.6 more last year. Yeah, but that, that comes from Acuna's base running and defense. But that's... I mean, you're saying they're better players. Yeah, no, I'm just saying better hitters. Oh, just purely better hitters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but again, like, I, I, I'd obviously rather have Acuna than those two. Oh, that's, yeah. not, that's not to say I'm arguing for those two. I'm just saying I think Acuna has reached this level of stardom where people are talking about him as better than he is at this very moment, yeah. which is still an all-star level player, but not a guy that I nece- like, not a guy that I necessarily expect to win the MVP next year. Which you know could all change if he if he breaks out again next year. Again, he's very good, could keep getting better every year. But I think an interesting guy to compare him to, and this is a good way to transition into the Nats, is Juan Soto. Yeah, because I think Juan Soto is a guy who you know obviously people love Juan Soto, but. I think he's a guy who, to this point in his career, has been a better player than Ronald Acuna. And it's crazy to think about, but I agree with you 100%, Sam. They played about the same amount. Soto played 116 games in 2018 and 150 games in 2019, whereas Acuna played 111, 156. And Soto's actually still a year younger. I was just about to say, Soto's almost a full year younger. We never think about that because 
I think this is the big distinction between them, and I don't want to sound like an old guy here, but if I'm building a team around one of these guys, not only do I want the extra year of Soto being young, because he definitely has that, what I want is Soto's professionalism. And of course, I'm not in, I'm not in the batting cages with the Braves, so I don't know how Acuna is working on his game day to day. But from what we've seen on the outside, every year I see Soto identify something that he's not good at and get better at it. And I don't necessarily see that out of Acuna. Now, the flip side of that argument is that Acuna has shown he can be a good fielder. Soto has not shown that. Soto has only shown poor fielding ability. But he did show an improvement in his fielding from year one to year two. And as we mentioned, fielding can take like three years to normalize. So if Acuna's worth eight runs next season, he actually doesn't look like that bad of a fielder over a three-year window. And I, I think the other thing to maybe note about these two is I'm always going to sort of choose a player who like gets their value from their bat as opposed to a player who gets their value from base running and fielding. And speed, yeah, and, it goes and speed, away. Because speed can go away Fast. Much quicker than sort of the, the bat does. And, and Juan Soto, I think, there's no debate about it, just has a better bat than Lacuna at this point in their careers. Yeah, I mean, he has elite plate discipline already, walking over 16% of the time over the last two seasons, and Kang only 20. That's in sharp opposition to about 10% and 25% for, so or for uh, Acuna. So that makes a huge difference. He also really has the ability to hit the ball for power and put it in the gaps. And at the end of the day, things like WRC Plus like him more for those reasons because he is all around a better hitter. He selects better pitches. He hits them harder. He gets on base more frequently. But and when you look at the numbers, the playoffs too. Like, oh, he's so I mean, clutch. He was yeah. ice cold. Those were so much fun. That yeah. was one of the best series I've seen in a long time. And to see a 20-year-old kid, I think he was still 20 at the time, to just see him get up there and have ice in his veins and lock down a World Series with an underdog team as a 20-year-old kid, I can't get over that. Yeah, I mean, but like, so with that, we sort of talked about Soto and Acuna, and I think that'll be an interesting two really young, really incredible players in this division for a while to come. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about, you know, what we think of the Nationals. So I think the clear strength is like that top three. Like, there's no better top three starters in baseball than Scherzer, Strasburg, Corbin. No doubt. Like, those guys are just incredible. And, you know, we can, we can drive home how good these guys are for a while. But I think what's maybe more interesting to talk about is, like, what's, what's, what is the rest of the team? That's kind of the problem is, like, yeah, their rotation is absolutely nasty. These are three guys who could compete for a Cy Young this year, right? Like, Corbin, of course, is a tier below Strasburg and Scherzer, but they're all just absolutely filthy. And then when you go to the lineup, you have Soto. We've talked about him. That's a superstar. Trey Turner, not actually as valuable a hitter as he once was or as people think he is. Yeah, but I, I think Trey Turner is the least of their problems. Trey Turner is the least of their problems, but I don't love having him be my second most reliable bat on my team. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. And then, you know, the rest of the lineup is dangerous. Adam Eaton, you know, guys, we no longer have a, a perennial all-star and a top hitter in baseball in Anthony Rendon in the lineup, and the protection's weak. You have Turner, Eaton, Starling Castro's going to get games. They're hoping Eric Timms hits. Ryan Zimmerman's there, but he's so old. Like, Victor Robles, and then they're hoping my player to watch, Carter Keeboom, 
can put something together and be a real hitter for them, but boy, is that kind of a, de- a bleak and desperate situation in yeah, their he lineup. He was like a disaster in his very brief stint last year. Right? Oh, only 11 games last year, so I'm not even looking at it. But he's definitely been a good hitter in the minors, but like I'm not sure anyone thinks he's going to be incredible. Part of his massive uh, profile as a rookie and as a prospect was rooted in the fact that he played shortstop and looks like they're sliding him over to third base. Which, yeah, which I think is partially just because they have Turner. But. Yeah, he probably could play yeah. shorts at least for a little bit, but they're putting him at third. All in all, talking about it's kind of depressing because between what they have in their lineup and their bullpen, I mean, boy, it would be possible to see this team explode to whatever extent a team that has three top pitchers in baseball especially, can. Especially with sort of my injury concerns with Scherzer, who's a guy who has just been, I, I mean in his late career, has catapulted himself into the Hall of Fame, basically, mm-hmm. by really being the best pitcher in baseball over the last five years, right. basically. But, you know, he has started to get hurt more often. After he came back from his injury last year, he wasn't quite the same, like, absolutely elite guy as he was before. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that he's not going to just go back to doing that next year, but he is getting old, and I am just a little bit worried about his health. Yeah, and he's knocking on 36 years old, so... He's the type of gamer who could just throw till his arm falls off, uh, and we just don't know when that's going to be. So again, the Nats are a good team, for sure. I think that they even could add to this team at some point during a season, depending on what trades and all that look like. But uh, I don't think they can compete with the Braves, really, just because that lineup is so paper-thin. Yeah, I mean... You know, these these are the defending World Series champions, so, like, I'm not going to be surprised if they win the NLEs. Yeah, right. But, but I do think, sort of, the Braves are a step above them right now because of the deeper lineup and because, like, I'm just... I'm really worried about that Nats lineup behind Soto. Yeah, it's really brutal. It's because, really like, brutal. E- even the guys who, like, are good players are good players, like, a lot because of their defensive value. Yeah, like and, Robles and Eaton, right? Yeah. Um... Robles especially. Yeah, Robles is a guy who was in the 0th percentile in exit velocity last year on StatCast. 0th percentile. That means he was the worst person in exit velocity by StatCast last year. And he was only in the 4th percentile of hard hit rate. Like, yeah, it, it's not great. I mean, he is also one of the best defensive outfielders. Yeah, he's a premier defielder. But, you know, again, the, the, bat, the bats behind Soto are not incredible in the Nationals lineup. But with that, you know, let's move on to the Phillies. So... You put the Phillies above the Mets, so tell I me what you like about them. I did. Look, I think the Phillies just really have a solid, solid lineup. Everywhere you look, you have a guy who is either a wily vet, uh, an emerging star, a perennial all-star. Who's their emerging star? I'm just wondering. I mean, yeah, okay, I guess it's a little <laughs> strong to call Scott Kingery an emerging star, but a younger talent, I suppose, would be more accurate. But Real Muto and Harper are true stars in this league. Hoskins has shown flashes of it in the past. Like he Maybe even he could be an emerging star. Um, and then Didi Gregoria, Andrew McCutcheon, Jane Segura, and Jay Bruce, and I like that they have Neil Walker as a depth piece, too. Like, that's a team that has a lot of experience, and now they got Joe Girardi at the helm, who is apparently what this team needs, even though he's not the type of manager I would take for my organization right Yeah. Now. Apparently, I, it's what they wanted, though. Yeah, but I mean, what they wanted might not be what's right. We'll, we'll, we'll see. 
And then I also think they have really solid pitchers in their rotation. And Aaron Nola, Zach Wheeler, and Arietta fits that Wiley Vet bill again. There are question marks on this team, no doubt, Sam. But when I went position by position, as I mentioned earlier, the Phillies get the edge at most positions. But yeah, I mean, I think where we'll, where we'll probably disagree is I think you're like viewing some of the veterans on the Phillies as better than I am. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't think, like, I think Segura's fine, but like, I don't actually think, like, I'd still rather have Rosario than Segura, like... Just for this season. Yeah. I disagree about that. Um, and, like, you know, McCutcheon, again, like, is a guy who's a former, you know, MVP-level player, but, you know, he's still maybe an average major league player, but he's he's not incredible. And, like, again, I think I, I think maybe where we, where we disagree is, like, you're putting more stock in, like, the name recognition of some of these players while... I, I sort of maybe have more belief in some of the players on the Mets, but but we can agree disagree on that. And I'm I'm sure I'm maybe slightly biased by thinking more of Mets players than the average person in baseball. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll tell you where I think a lot of this hinges because the I mean I told you guys I thought it was very close. These Phillies could easily be a fourth place team. I think it's harder for them to be a second place team than it is a fourth place team, but it's possible. I think a lot of it hinges on a guy, Reese Hoskins. I think that if he is a big, solid bat in the lineup, more like the 130 WRC Plus in 2018 versus the 113 in 2019, you have a very different looking lineup. Of course, we need some vets to produce, but I'm not worried about a guy like McCutcheon or Harper. You know, Harper could be transcendent next year, or, Although it's, it's or been it could a while just be since very good. You know, like Harper is... Harper... Right, but he's always going to be very good. Yeah, but I, I will say that, like, you know, since 2015, Harper has turned into a guy who is more likely to be a borderline all-star than he is to be an MVP. Right. And so I think I'm naming three players here where I think it hinges. One is Reese Hoskins. Two is Aaron Nola, who's actually my player to watch. Aaron Nola in 2018 was a true ace in this league, a 237 ERA, a 3 He, uh, you know, limited it to less than two and a half walks per nine. He was good all around. He was able to pitch 212 innings. That's great. In 2019, you know, he broke 200 innings again, which is great news. But that walk rate went up over a full walk per nine. He started giving up almost half a more homer per game. His BABIP shot through the roof. His ERA jumped to 387. If that's the Aaron Nola the Phillies get next year, boy, do they struggle to play with the Mets. But I think Aaron Nola is better than that. And so I think... Almost all of this hinges on either Nola or Wheeler, who's my last one here. Well, Wheeler's my player to watch, and I think, you know, I obviously have an affinity for Zach Wheeler. I think the five years, $118 million that the that the Phillies gave is actually a great contract with him, and, like, I was beating myself over the head. The Mets were not willing to give that to Wheeler, because if the Mets had Wheeler now, this is a whole different yeah. story. You could... Talk about them. Maybe even Aaron might be putting them. At, at I'm definitely the putting them. Wheeler is for sure the difference between the Mets and the Phillies in this division. Yeah. Because going from one team to the other. And, and I think one question about Wheeler is, you know, his, you know, he came over to the Mets in that Beltron trade just as he was starting to live up to his potential. And remember, this is a guy who is a more high-regarded pitching prospect for the Mets than Harvey, yeah. then Syndergaard, then Degrom. Literally number one as the, you know, as high-regarded pitching prospects go for them. And right when he started to maybe start to live up to that, he had to get Tommy John. He had a really long return from it. wasn't great after he missed two seasons. But then in 2018 and 2019, he really started to put together. 
took the elite stuff, turned into a good but not great major league pitcher. But I think a lot of people expect that going forward, he could take a big jump sort of like Garrett Cole did. Like he has the stuff to do that. Yeah, and the small difference here is that Wheeler's almost 30. Yeah. And so, but what you do see in baseball today is that some of these guys who are 30 can actually find new life in either advanced statistics or a new approach on the mound. Um, and we've seen it with some other guys like Charlie Morton, who came on even later than Wheeler is right now. It's, po- it's definitely possible, and he definitely could put together a better season than Nola this year. But the Phillies really need both of those guys to pitch well, and they kind of need one of them to be dominant this year. Um, if they're going to have a shot at second, they definitely need them both to pitch well if they're going to edge out the Mets. I, I'd say I think Nola's median performance is probably going to be higher than Wheeler's. But like, I, I'd be less surprised if Wheeler won the Cy Young than Nola. Yeah, I could see that. Because even Nola's best season, I think, is going to fly under the dazzle and or brilliance of a guy like Walker Bueller or even a guy like Trevor Bauer in Cincinnati potentially could put together... Um, whereas Wheeler does have some of that uh, more elite, not elite, because he's only nine Ks per nine, but more elite strikeout stuff uh, and can really get electric on the hill sometimes. So good team, definitely not great, um, very close between them and the Mets for me, uh, but I had to edge him out. You add them in fourth, and that brings us down to the bottom of this division uh, in the Marlins, and this is just, uh, this is tough. Yeah, I mean, the Marlins are a team that really, for a long time, has the second they get they get good, they're just not willing to spend, and they're just going to tear it down. So, you know, they tore it down after the 97 World Series. Yeah. They tore it down after the 03 World Series. And remember, this is a team that had Jose Fernandez, John Collar Stanton, Marcelo Zuna, Christian Yelich, JT Realmuto. JT Realmuto. All of these guys were on the Marlins at once, but they are all no longer there. Of course, the ho- the reason Andy Jose Gordon Fer- when he was really yeah, good. and of course the reason Jose Fernandez isn't there is a much sadder reason. He he passed away, and I remember when I heard that that the, that news hit me hard. Yeah, that, like, that hit me guy, really hard. That guy was absolutely electric, and uh, just an absolute delight to watch on the field. Yeah. Always played with a smile on his face, was authentically himself, and just loved the game of baseball. And it's funny you bring him up, Sam, because I actually believe that, yes, they always, always just tear the team down. But I kind of feel like if Jose Fernandez is alive today, this team may have some or all of those players because that's a real championship core. You know, that's a team that you can really build around and win. And even in a small market, I think they figure out how to do it. But of course, instead, we saw Giancarlo shipped out for nothing. For absolutely nothing. Starling Castro, Jorge Guzman, and Jose Devers, all of whom are potentially decent prospects, but nothing amazing. And then you see Christian Yelich go for Luis Brinson, Isan Diaz, Jordan Yamamoto, and Monte Harrison. That, at the time, looked a little better because yeah. Lewis Brinson was such a highly regarded Br- prospect. Brinson's been a complete and utter disaster at the major league level. And a guy, as a guy who's watched the Mets play the Marlins a lot of times, like he just looks totally helpless. He's been an absolute yeah. disaster. But a guy who hasn't is actually Jordan Yamamoto, who's been fairly decent. Yeah, he's been fine. But again, you know, that wasn't the worst trade because at least they got a top prospect in baseball at the time. Um, but then you see Marcelo Zuna go for Sandy Alcantara and Zach Gallen. Another trade that actually worked out well for them, the Marlins then traded Zach Gallen to my Diamondbacks in exchange for Jazz Chisel and the young shortstop. Um, and I think that actually will work out fairly decent for them. 
Yeah, you know, I, I think maybe all the individual trades, you can't necessarily fault the Marlins a ton. Except for, John Carlo. Yeah, for the return at the time. But, like, a Except lot of John these... Carlo. Yeah, agreed. But a lot of these trades have definitely not worked out as well as they'd hoped. And, like, you know, of course, Yelich wasn't an MVP when they traded him. Right, right. He, he, was, he was more of a borderline all-star, so... But he was budding. Yeah, but these trades have really not worked out for the Marlins, and it's left them with a really, like, honestly, a pretty bad major league lineup. But, you know, they're trying to build from the organizational depth. They're trying to build prospects. You know, if they're of strengths to point to, you know, there may be a couple interesting young arms in the rotation, I think. Alcantara is not bad. Caleb Smith might be kind of interesting. Honestly, all of them. Pablo Lopez is interesting, and Jordan Yamamoto is kind yeah, of and interesting. Yeah, and, and then Sixto Sanchez is a pitching prospect they got in the Real Muto trade, right. who could end up pitching some this year. My player to watch for the Marlins was Brian Anderson, who, again, is not anyone I think is going to turn into the star, but he's the definition of sort of a player who, by being solid in all phases of the game, mm-hmm. turns into having some value. He has two straight seasons of above three war. He's projected to be a three-war again this season, and again, that's not an all-star, but that is actually the best player, player on the Myers. Yeah. yeah, That's a player that a lot of teams would like to have. Yeah. And I'm glad you actually brought up their lineup, because as in compared to some other last-place teams, actually, you know, we joke about the Marlins, but they're not nearly on the level of, say, the Orle- Orioles or the Tigers, I'm sorry. They're better than they've been in the last couple of years. Yeah, this is the best lineup they've yeah. had in a while, and their rotation is the most interesting it's been in a while. You know, they got VR, they got Corey Dickinson, who's halfway decent, Matt Joyce, and then my player to watch, Jesus Aguilar, who was very bad last year. Um, but don't forget, the year before, he hit 35 bombs out of nowhere and was a three-war player. And I don't see any reason, besides for Marlins Park, that in a more stable situation for him getting every day at bats, because that's what he did in 2018, that's how he broke out, I don't see why he couldn't hit 30 bombs anyway, even in that bad park. He's just got a ton of power. And so, I don't know, you put that in with a couple guys who can get on base, like Brian Anderson, Jonathan VR, a couple other bats with a little bit of pop, and Dickerson and Joyce. This team may play kingmaker in the National League East. The way that the other National League East teams play against the Marlins this year... Because something tells me it won't just be a rout of them like it has been in previous years. The Marlins could upset someone's season and kick a National League East team out of the playoffs. I yeah. can see it. No, I can see that. How well how well you beat up on the basement dwellers in your division has a big impact on whether or not you win the division. Yep. So that's our NL East, you know, a lot of disagreements, partially spurred by Aaron deciding he no longer wants to be friends with me. <laughs> uh but, you know, before we close out, let's do quick over-unders. Yep, yep. So, Mets, 86.5. Under. I'm going over, of course. Yeah. Braves, 92. Ooh. Over. I'm actually going to go over as well. Nationals, 89.5. These over-unders are good. They're, I say it every time, and I'm always surprised. I'll take under. I'm also going to go under on that. Uh, Phillies at... 85 and a half. Uh, I'll take over for 86. I'm going under on that. And then Marlins, 63 and a half. I think I have to go over. I think I'm going to go under just because the division's tough. But yeah. I, I do think they're better than some of... Well, I think they're probably still the worst team in the NL, but I think they're better than some of these uh, these AL bottom dwellers. 
Yeah, I would I would agree. Um, I'd say the Pirates and the Giants are better than them. But yeah, I still think they... I would rather that season than the Orioles and the Tigers are facing this year. Yeah, but um, that wraps up our NL East preview. We're going to be back to you next episode with our predictions for who's going to make the playoffs, who's going to win the World mm-hmm. Series. But uh, until then, please make sure to follow us at the Alonzo Bed on Twitter. Email us at thealonzobet at gmail.com if you have something you want to get in contact, contact with us about. And please remember to uh, leave positive comments, rate the podcast wherever you're listening to us. And, you know, we love that you guys are listening. We've been getting a lot of positive feedback. So keep listening. And, and this is really all for you guys. So thanks a lot. Signing off. This is Sam. And I'm Aaron. Thanks again for stopping by. That's all, folks.